I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Tom Shalhoub. I'm Maria Bartiromo, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, September 12th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. A presidential press conference is getting a lot of attention as polls prior to it showed growing concern about the president's age. I mean, there was a kind of a, a one-minute discourse about a John Wayne movie um, that, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to a lot of reporters who were in the room. It just, again, Biden is a man who's showing his age. He's 80 years old right now. He will be 82 in 2024. I'm Dave Anthony. There's still no trial in sight for the 9-11 attack mastermind and four other terror suspects still jailed at Guantanamo and attempted plea deals going nowhere. One of the holdups for this plea agreement is that the, the terrorists want to stay at Guantanamo. The last place they want to end up is uh, like a supermax prison like Florence, Colorado. And I'm Tammy Bruce. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. It was a busy weekend for President Biden following a busy week that included a trip to the G20 summit in India, then Hanoi, Vietnam, where the Prime Minister of Vietnam and President Biden agreed to deepen ties on multiple fronts. The U.S. announced the launch of a semiconductor workforce development initiative supported by U.S. seed funding. The U.S. committed to assist Vietnam with finance and advanced climate technology for their climate commitments. But it was a press conference Sunday evening in Vietnam that caught some attention. He may have a game plan. He just hasn't shared it with me. But I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go to bed. He was answering a question about why he hasn't spoken with China's president in 10 months, explaining that Xi Jinping has a lot on his plate with high youth unemployment and economic issues in China. After he said he was going to bed, the reporter pressed the follow-up off mic. It wasn't confrontational at all. Thank thank you, everybody. This ends the press conference. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. That was White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre stepping in. The press conference had lasted about 25 minutes. Fox News anchor Martha McCallum said on Outnumbered. So he's now basically campaigning, I mean, you know, essentially in, in a broad sense, for another term with every one of these appearances. How in God's name is that going to work for four more years if this is, you know, how taxing the actual job is and I, I just, I, I mean that respectfully. I just think that it's, it's that th- th- this was a, a mess. Monday, this is how the president sounded while honoring the anniversary of 9/11 from Anchorage, Alaska. In the crucible of 9/11 and the days and months that followed, we saw the stuff America's made of. But the president's recent falls, trips up the stairs of Air Force One, and certain moments during speeches have some Americans worried. A recent CNN poll found roughly three-quarters of Americans are concerned about the fact that the president is currently 80 years old. Well, look, on, on one hand, you have a president who is traveling to the G20, went to India, gave a press conference in, in Vietnam. Josh Krasauer is Fox News Radio's political analyst. And, uh, you know, tackled a lot of significant foreign policy issues on on the United States' plate, including the, the war in Ukraine. On the other hand, if you watched the president's uh, press conference in Hanoi over the weekend, you would think that this uh, commander in chief looks very much every year of his 80 years old. He was sort of halting at times, was very... Uh, kind of rambled at times and answering questions from from the press and uh you could also look at the results and, and you could be a little bit dissatisfied that the 
communiques out of the G20 uh, were not tougher on Russia, did not come to any uh, more of a pro-Ukraine sentiment, especially when it came to the, the Western powers. So, you know, you can combine the look, the... Uh, you know, the fact that Biden is showing his age, so to speak, and look at the, the you know, you also question the results uh, out of this foreign trip. And there are a lot of Americans on the former part uh, worried about his age. And that's going to be an issue coming throughout this 2024 campaign. I mean, we've we've seen or really like heard press handlers say, you know, last question or that's all everyone out. Um, you know, it's it's not unheard of. And during during certain presidencies, it's actually more common to hear press handlers, you know, get involved and step in. But this hearing Karine Jean-Pierre sort of step over him, talk over him and end that press conference as he was sort of like mumbling uh, that that did feel yeah. different. I mean, there was a kind of a, a one minute discourse about a John Wayne movie um, that, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to a lot of reporters who were in the room. It just you know, again, Biden is a man who is showing his age. He's 80 years old right now. He will be 82 in 2024 when he's on the ballot in, in, in that November reelection. All you got to do is look at the polls. Every poll shows not just Republicans, but a majority of Democrats are very concerned about Biden's age as, as he heads to that reelection. Now, look, they may still vote for him, especially if, if he's matching up against Donald Trump. But it's a clear vulnerability and it's one, one that's becoming more glaring and obvious uh, as we see more of the president. You made a point about at the G20, there wasn't a more forceful statement against Russia. I think there was also some reaction that um, while President Biden was in Vietnam meeting with Vietnamese leaders, that there wasn't more forceful verbiage from him against China. Is, is that your sense as well? Or, Well, yes. And, and look, one consequence, one byproduct of being 80 years old is that it's harder to drive a message. It's harder to use the bully pulpit to your advantage, both on the policy front and trumpeting uh, messages to our rivals and enemies abroad, or even from the political front, where you need to, you know, talk about the great economy, if you think it's getting better, or talking about some of the successes that we've had in recent weeks, or at least Ukraine has had in recent weeks in its counteroffensive against Russia. When you watch that press conference, Jess, out of Hanoi, you can see the limitations that this commander in chief has and being able to drive home that message. He, he is not someone who is watching his speeches being clipped and, and distributed and, and broadcast around the globe. It, it's more uh, as an example of how he's not necessarily up to the job or questions, at least, about him being up to the job. I know you've actually made that point in a recent article about sort of the, I guess, intersection of concern over age versus you know, with your ability to deliver the message. Um, and I think you were making the point that, you know, if even if people are concerned about your age, right, age is nonpartisan. We're all going to get older, right? But it's it. Your, your point was it's also interfering with your ability to highlight what you see as your successes. So while these are two separate issues, they, they converge. That's right. And look, you could argue that this has actually been, in terms of the actual developments in the news, a pretty decent stretch for President Biden. The economy, uh, in the eyes of voters even, is getting a little bit better. Wages are, are rising faster than inflation. The American economy is doing a whole lot better than our European and Chinese counterparts. That's There are a lot of bullet points you can highlight, the kind of stuff you would hear in a State of the Union, but these are the type of messages you would expect the president to trumpet uh, from the White House or from the campaign trail now on a regular basis. And we just haven't 
heard an effective message being broadcast. It, it's the fact that Biden is uniquely ill-equipped to convince the, the persuadable voters out there that he deserves credit for some of these accomplishments, that there is good news that should be trumpeted. And, you know, I dare you to look at, listen to a Biden speech and find uh, more than a couple of good sound bites that you could use in a television ad for his uh, re-election campaign. In fact, one of the notes I, I, I pointed out in, in, in the piece is that uh, the president is up with the campaign, is, at least, is up with two big ads in battleground states, one on the economy, one on his leadership, uh, his trip to Ukraine, uh, you know, several months ago. And none of the ads features him speaking and him, him saying anything. And uh, I think that's an example of how Biden is uniquely, you know, usually you, you would utilize a powerful speech by a president or a good soundbite at the very least. And instead, they're, they're, they don't have a lot to work with his campaign. And I think that's a really big challenge, a big red flag heading into the reelection. OK, I want to play for our listeners right now, Josh, what Vice President Kamala Harris and California Governor Gavin Newsom each said on recent shows or in recent interviews. Newsom on Meet the Press and Vice President Harris with an AP reporter. Well, I think the vice president is naturally one lined up and the filing deadlines are quickly coming to pass. And I think we need to move past this notion that he's not going to run. President Biden is going to run. Joe Biden's going to be fine. So that is not going to come to fruition. But what's your sense? I mean, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has said, make no mistake, I'm running against Kamala Harris. Like, is that true? Uh, is it a smart is it is it smart of her to frame it that way? Well, it's a, it's a good political strategy. But, I, you know, one one other note, Jess, is that every Republican is tied when I mean, they're, they're tied with Biden, no matter if you're statistically tied like uh, DeSantis or Trump. Trump is one point up, I believe. Almost every Republican is running at the very least neck and neck with with Biden. So there's a it shows the the outcome that we all have seen from poll after poll, and that there's a lot of questions about Biden's uh, leadership and his, and his ability to inspire confidence in the American public. But yeah, like I mean, one one of the big polling numbers I think that 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 is really, really you know eyebrow raising is that uh, the Wall Street Journal survey that came out last week shows that. Biden trails Trump by 11 points when asked which president, former or present, has a better record of accomplishments. Uh, that's a that's a pretty sizable gap. And it really it shows that Biden has not been doing a very good job driving home the points that he, he's trying to make, that the economy is doing better, that our foreign policy is showing leadership in Ukraine. And there is a lot of legislative achievements under his record. OK, finally, Josh, this this same poll from last week, it, it also found 61 percent think the president was involved in his son's business dealings. Forty two percent said he acted illegally. I wonder if you combine that with, you know, some questionable empathy moments like in Hawaii or the migrant crisis, you know, Democrats like New York's mayor demanding help from the federal government saying, you know, the situation is going to destroy New York City. You look at all of, of that as well. And at the very least, it seems like a bit of a mess to navigate. Well, yeah, I mean, these are, again, examples on different fronts where the lack of presidential pushback on uh, whatever you think of whether President Biden committed, you know, uh, crimes, whether he's guilty of ethical misconduct or whether he's totally innocent. Uh, the president himself has not talked at all about the issue. In fact, I think when Peter Ducey actually got face to face with him about a month ago, uh, he, he got very defensive, got very upset and, and didn't offer any kind of response uh, other than anger. Um, that's not good. That's not a good look. 
Um, that's why I think the public is that that vacuum is being filled by skepticism by people who are just starting to learn about some of the details about his, his son's uh, business dealings. And then they're judging him critically and skeptically. Um, and yeah, like he, he, even his trademark empathy, which helped get him elected in, in the first place, given his, his very you know tragic personal history with uh, going back to his early days in the Senate. You know, even that skill has been found limiting or has, has not been shown when he went to visit Hawaii in, in, in the aftermath of those horrible, uh, horrible fires there. Uh, he, he got ripped by even a lot of the, the more liberal press about his lack of uh, empathy and, and the fact that he was equating what was a, just a, a horrible, horrible tragedy with his own incident of a personal small fire in his house that was put out quickly. People thought that was quite tone deaf and it really, really exacerbated, uh, you know, sort of the, the very issues we're talking about, that he's not able to utilize the, the power of the presidential bully pulpit in a way that could help his presidency. Well, we'll see if the uh, creators of Dark Brandon step in to save, to save the messaging. I know you'd remarked on that. Right. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think these these are issues that are not going to get easier as, as time goes on. And that, that's what I think worries a lot of the more more anxious Democratic operatives involved in, in the reelection campaign. Josh Kassar, thank you for joining. Thanks, Jess. This is Tammy Bruce with your Fox News commentary coming up. It's been 22 years since 9-11. That was a ground zero in New York City. Where bells rang at the exact times terrorists flew two planes into the World Trade Center. And then again, they rang to remember the times the Twin Towers collapsed. Those terrorists wanted to destroy our country. But on that day, and every day since, the United States has demonstrated that we would never bow to fear and hatred. That's Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley at the Pentagon, where a third plane had crashed September 11, 2001, murdering 184 people. Forty more victims were honored in Pennsylvania. Sandy Waugh Bradshaw. She was a flight attendant on United 93, where the 40 passengers and crew fought back against the terrorist hijackers on the fourth plane that crashed in a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. In all, nearly 3,000 people were killed that day. And 22 years later, the mastermind of those attacks, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four other terror suspects, remain detained at Guantanamo, a U.S. military facility in Cuba, with no trial in sight. As far as I'm concerned, they can rot at Gitmo for the rest of their lives in legal limbo. That's Don Arias, a former Air Force major. His brother Adam died in the 9-11 attacks. Just last week, President Biden rejected terms of a possible plea deal. I've become convinced over the years that there's no way they're ever going to get the death penalty. Andy McCarthy is a former federal prosecutor and ex-assistant U.S. attorney in New York, now a Fox News contributor. So if it were my call, I would take the guilty plea with the assurance that they would never see the light of day again and take the death penalty off the table for the sake of getting the case resolved. Now, in rejecting this proposed plea deal, 
he didn't agree with the terms like no solitary confinement and also that we would give them care for trauma that they suffered while interrogated in CIA custody. Uh, that last part would be very difficult to sell, I would imagine, to the victims' families or anybody else that they themselves, the mastermind and these suspects, these terrorists, deserve treatment, our care. Yeah, well, but it's a fact that anybody who's in our custody as a matter of law, they get our care. I mean, I assume that uh, most people would agree that you can't take them back to their cells every night and beat the crap out of them. You know, we have we have obligations. It's one thing to say what cosmic justice would do with respect to these guys. And it, to my it, to my mind, uh, you know, if there was that kind of justice, I would draw and quarter them at, you know, at Yankee Stadium at high noon, if it was up to me. Uh, but that's not, you know, we're not in our legal system, we can't act on our emotions. We have to act on the law. I remember um, former Attorney General Mukasey making the observation that uh, when he went to Guantanamo Bay, he saw that uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had the same exercise equipment that Judge Mukasey had, that he was then Attorney General Mukasey had uh, in his uh, you know Manhattan apartment. Uh, apartment building. Uh, the only difference being uh, Mukasey, the attorney general, had to stand online to use it, whereas, you know, KSM had it right there at his disposal Jeez. whenever he wanted it. So yeah, no, it's hard. I, I it's, do... it's hard to deal with that. I know people have had a hard time because the conditions of Guantanamo are not harsh. They, I think a lot of people wish they were. Certainly, they're better than they would be at a supermax prison, right, Andy? Oh, yeah. In, in fact, one of the holdups for this plea agreement is that the the terrorists want to stay at Guantanamo. The last place they want to end up is uh, like a supermax prison like Florence, Colorado. And I'm not for a moment suggesting that, uh, you know, permanent confinement till the end of your days uh, is a pleasant prospect for anyone. But I think they have found that uh, Guantanamo uh, is decidedly more desirable for them than a federal prison. We, we, we can't put them in a federal prison, right? I mean, they are going to be at Guantanamo until whatever legal process plays out. And then what happens? Let's say there is a plea agreement ultimately and they agree to plead guilty and get life in prison. Where would they go? Do they have to stay there? Well, that's part of the negotiation for the plea agreement. I think they want to guarantee that they would be permitted to stay at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, the American authorities would prefer to send them to a supermax prison. And, you know, when you say that they can't go to a federal prison, I think they could go to a federal prison if they would agree to it. Okay. And what they're trying to do is, is to get a guarantee that no government will try to send them there. What they're afraid of, Dave, bottom line here, is that at this moment when there's no plea agreement, they have the highest degree of leverage that they will ever have. What they're worried about is that no matter what this government tells them, the next administration will just put them in a federal prison if they decide, you know, for national security reasons, they must close Gitmo. So that's part of what's driving the negotiation right now. It's been 22 years, Andy, and we still haven't had this trial or whatever it's going to be called down in Guantanamo and this military commission. Why is it taking so long? Well, I think the main reason why it's 
taking so long is that the commissions are not stable and never have been. So when the Bush administration wisely, I think, tried to turn us away from the idea that international jihadist terrorism, particularly with respect to enemy combatants uh, who were trying to conduct mass murder attacks against Americans who were operating from overseas havens, who were battling against our troops, um, realizing that that was a, uh, a a military and national security problem rather than a criminal justice problem. They did basically a 180 away from the Clinton counterterrorism approach that we used from the time I prosecuted terrorism cases in the early 90s up until 9-11, which was that we regarded it as a crime problem that the civilian courts should address. I think what happened with Bush is he got right the principle that enemy combatants should not be tried in civilian court. But the problem is that not enough attention was given to standing up a court system that would withstand persistent, relentless challenge. I think also people like me who were advocates of the military system overestimated how well it would perform. It really did not perform well, even in the few cases that it was able to handle. Uh, some of the sentences were truly appalling. And, uh, you know, people got slaps on the wrist comparatively, who if they had been tried in the civilian system, given the record that had been compiled in terrorism cases by that time, they would have been slammed by federal judges. I proposed back in the Oh, I want to say in the early 2000s, within a few years after 9-11, that we should create a national security court uh, and that we should give some thought to, you know, exactly what crimes it would be uh, able to hear, you know, to, to consider cases involving. Uh, my idea of it was that it would be presided over by regular Article Three judges, just the kind of judges that you get in civilian courts. Uh, but it would mostly follow the procedures uh, that are available in the military justice system, particularly those that allow us to protect classified information from being disclosed uh, to the defense because it's lunatic. And dating um, back to what you did in the 1990s, prosecuting after the World Trade Center bombing in 1993, the first attack on the World Trade Center in New York, but, you know, eight years before 9-11, you were able you were successful. Well, it depends on what success means. You know, if, if you're saying, can you get the case to the finish line, meaning you prove your case and everybody gets convicted? Yeah, we were successful. Everybody was successful. But if you're if your question is slightly different, which is, did those prosecutions comport with the national security of the United States? I think the answer is a much more mixed bag in order to carry out those prosecutions. We had to give immense discovery to the defense, uh, which they were then able to share with their uh, Al-Qaeda compatriots who were not on trial. And it made us more liable to be attacked, which, of course, we were. Would it have been better to have just taken these five KSM and the four others, just taken them out, killed them on the battlefield? I mean, we've used drones. We've used other military strikes to kill. We had a raid to kill Osama bin Laden. We never had a trial for them was essentially the death penalty, right? Yeah, and I think during the Obama years, they ended up crashing into their rhetoric exactly along those lines. So, 
you know, they didn't want to use Guantanamo Bay. They didn't want to use military justice. They kept saying that the civilian system was perfectly adequate. But then what ended up happening was when they were given the choice of killing or capturing terrorists, they would generally opt to kill them because it was much easier in terms of how you deal with them. It's a very difficult problem and allowing the the politics to to do what it did in terms of our response to it has been well we're seeing the result in exactly what you're asking me about which is this case that's been going on for 20 years that can't be resolved do you think we'll go 20 more years with them still there i don't really see on the horizon a an outcome you know i i just think that if you're going to take the position that they have to get a full trial including with the death penalty uh then what becomes relevant to that trial is the methods that were used to interrogate them. And the big problem in the case right now is that the government uh, seems to suggest that they need at least some of the statements that they got from these guys, not during uh, the enhanced interrogation, but afterwards, um, that they need some of those statements in these prosecutions. And as long as that's the case, then the way that they were treated is going to be an issue. And there's no guarantee that if you presented all that evidence to a military commission that they would impose the death penalty. So I, I just think as long as the the head, the political leadership of the government refuses to sign off on a plea deal uh, where these guys admit guilt, admit that they will never you know, be released from custody, but we take the death penalty off the table unless unless you come to that resolution. I just don't see this case getting to trial. Andy McCarthy, former assistant U.S. attorney in New York, now a Fox News contributor. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Gianna Gelosi with your Fox True Crime Minute. First, he slipped out of prison. Now he slipped past hundreds of police officers that are on a manhunt to find him. Police released new photos of 34-year-old fugitive Danilo Cavalcante now sporting a hoodie and clean-shaven look more than 20 miles from the search area flooded with police. Police say over the weekend, Cavalcante stole a Ford Transit dairy delivery van, drove it to East Pikeland Township in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, where he sought the help of two former co-workers. They weren't home and alerted police after viewing their ring doorbell camera. Again, we ask residents to please secure homes, outbuildings, and vehicles. Cavalcante has clearly already obtained some clothing and other unknown supplies. That's Pennsylvania State Police Lieutenant Colonel George Bivens. Cavalcante fled Chester County Prison August 31st. He was sentenced to life in prison for murdering his ex-girlfriend. Cavalcante is also wanted in Brazil, where he's from, for homicide. You can see the new pictures of Calvacante at foxnews.com and subscribe to the Fox True Crime Podcast with Emily Campagno. I'm Gianna Gelosi with your Fox True Crime Minute. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tammy Bruce. What's on your mind? 
It's for the children. It's one of the most familiar alibis used by leftist tyrants and bullies throughout history. To this very day, Americans are faced with the malevolent targeting of children in the name of protecting them from their own parents. But there is good news on the home front when it comes to our pushback against the left using schools to turn children against their parents. At the end of August, Patriot and Warrior attorney Harmeet Dillon and her team at the Center for American Liberty achieved an important legal victory for Jessica Conan, said her 11-year-old daughter Alicia. Once Conan found out her little girl was being transitioned without her knowledge, she sued the school. Fox News reported in what's been called a landmark victory for parental rights, a California school district has settled for $100,000 with a mother who said her daughter was socially transitioned to a boy without parental knowledge or consent. Conan is an example of what Biden's DOJ must especially fear, an inspirational mom on a mission. Quote, they, teachers and schools, need to understand their place and they need to stay in their place. And schools nowadays, they're awful. So I'm going to fight this fight and keep fighting this fight, Conan told Fox News Digital. Political and social advocates are constantly using the straw man argument that schools have to keep secrets from parents because the child may face danger at home or, at the very least, won't be accepted for who they are. That is the core of their argument, and yet if a child faces actual danger in a home, there are already laws allowing intervention for a child's safety. But even the left knows they can't yet have children taken from their parents simply because the parents don't pay allegiance to the leftist narrative du jour. Make no mistake, that is their ultimate goal. Keep an eye on how the left and their media enablers will continue to push the malicious lie that anything other than a progressive home constitutes an environment that is unsafe and violent for a child. In this country, one hallmark is that we don't allow the government to punish us for our beliefs, take our children from us because of our faith, or arrest people because we don't like their opinions. At its core, it is disgusting and pathetic, but even more seriously, it reveals a nationwide effort by the government and agents of the state, through teachers' unions and leftist politicians, to gain pseudo-custody of your children by alleging that not conforming to the leftist worldview places children in danger. Fortunately, more schools are implementing parental rights policies, which is a direct result of parents running for and winning school board seats throughout the country. But they will also likely face lawsuits from states run by regressive Democrats. We must remain vigilant and involved at our local and state levels. Agents of the state, strangers who have no long-term personal responsibility or interest in the children but want to control and influence them, have no business perpetuating the malevolent argument that parents are the dangerous ones. It is strangers who are obsessed with controlling your children who are the monsters on the hill. I'm Tammy Bruce, a Fox News contributor, and this column originally posted at AMAC.us. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.